0: Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Libraries podcast. I'm Hattie Dulac, here with my co-host Kate Price-McCarthy. Hi Kate. Hi Hattie, how are you doing? I am very well, thank you. I'm kind of enjoying some of the signs of spring that seem to be breaking through. Lots of going on walks with my headphones in, listening to a good audiobook. How about you? Are you reading anything good at the moment?
1: Well, I've just finished reading a new book by Jeremy Dyson and Andy Nyman, who we're hoping to have on the podcast later, called The Warlock Effect, which is about a magician in 1950s London who gets involved in the really dangerous world of espionage and gets sent Across Europe with a dangerous mission to fulfil, but there's some really fascinating stuff about about magic. He even gives they even give you some, a little bit of insight on how some of these incredibly mysterious magic tricks are performed. I think Andy Nyman works with Darren Brown on his magic shows, so it gets you you get a real glimpse behind how to make these astonishing tricks. How you just cannot think how they could be performed, and you say, Ah, oh, yes, if you do that and you do that then it all becomes clear how
0: it all happens. It all makes sense. A little peek behind the curtain. That sounds really, really interesting.
1: Indeed. So so how about you? What about you? What are you reading at the moment?
0: I've just finished a book called Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zauner. I don't know where I heard about it, but I, I saw that a few of my friends had read it and I thought it was really good. It's not for the faint of heart, I would say. It's quite a harrowing account of a young woman's experience of her mother dying with cancer and certainly yeah not a light read by any means it's really touching and it's punctuated with all these really really gorgeously detailed descriptions of korean foods that the author kind of connects to memories of her mother and it kind of helps her with the the grieving process and reflecting on on the moments that kind of led to her mother dying and how she could feel more connected to her to her parent in but via that kind of Culture. So yeah, I, I really loved it, I, although it was quite difficult at points, and yeah, don't wear any mascara if you're gonna read it because you'll just cry it all off.
1: So in this episode of Love Your Library, you'll hear us chatting with Shannon Chakraborty, who you may know from her best selling Davabad trilogy. A fantastical YA series set in a magical Middle Eastern kingdom.
0: So I spoke to Shannon about her exciting new release, which is The Adventures of Amina al-Sarafi, which will be kicking off a new trilogy of books that readers are sure to love.
1: And then later on in the episode, Hattie and I catch up with Adrian, a library team assistant who covers a range of New Forest libraries. Uh, He's picked a book that is positively out of this world. So stay listening to find out more about his recommendation.
0: For now, though, let's start by tuning into my chat with Shannon Chakraborty. The interview starts with her reading a short excerpt from the book. Salima winked
2: at Marjana and I snapped. People have this idea of mothers, that we are soft and gentle and sweet. As though the moment my daughter was laid on my breast, the phrase, I would do anything, did not take on a depth I could have never understood before. This woman thought to come into my home and threaten my family in front of my child? She must not have heard the right stories about Amina Asarafi.
0: Oh, <laughs> setting the scene. That is a pretty Trying, powerful... It's hard to pick one. <laughs> it is hard to pick one. It is hard to pick one. So I think for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the book? So, I originally
2: envisioned The Adventures of Amina Asarafi as sort of a cross between Sinbad the Sailor and Ocean's Eleven. Uh, I wanted it to be an adventurous heist story set in the medieval Indian Ocean. Um, It's about a retired pirate who gets sort of pulled back, blackmailed into the game by a noble woman who wants her help in finding her kidnapped granddaughter. It's a story very heavily inspired by the magic and the mythology and the folklore and also just the history and travels of the medieval Indian Ocean. It's a period of history I've always loved, and I wanted something that kind of played with a lot of those stories. You know, we can think of travelers such as Ibn Battuta or the stories of the thousand and one nights. But in this, I wanted a story that featured the people who sort of got talked down about in those histories. Mm. You know, the porters who carried the goods for the scholar, for the fancy scholars, and those that they derived as criminals or lewd women. So I wanted to kind of take the focus back on those characters um and really kind of just delve into this madcap escapist tale.
0: Yeah, I mean, what what an absolute tapestry of um of stories and and things to kind of talk about there. So our listeners will probably know you best from your hugely successful first trilogy, the Devabad trilogy. What has it been like embarking on a new kind of journey of your own with with the with the new trilogy? Have you felt any pressure?
2: You know, I felt a very different sort of pressure because I started working on this book. I essentially had the last book in the Bod trilogy come out right when the pandemic started. So I was supposed to start working on this, this new entire trilogy that was going to be at a different level of my career. I was going to travel for it right at the point, I mean, about the same week my daughter was sent home from kindergarten. My husband, a healthcare provider, was pulled back into work, and I did not know how to do that. It felt like, the, one, the most selfish thing in the world, to be trying to write this ridiculous fictional tale why the world was going to hell. Um, and I also felt like my family very much needed me, more present, you know, we I, I live right outside New York City, so when the pandemic hit the States, we were one of the first hotspots. You know, I felt like I had to take care of my daughter and my husband, So I started writing this story that I knew I wanted it to be this adventure tale. And it just took on depths I don't think I could really have imagined because I was so focused on, you know, taking care of my family and thinking, well, I guess that career in writing that I had worked so hard for is gone. (laughs) So it kind of took on an element that I was talking about. You know the balance of parenthood, particularly motherhood, and what the cost of that of wanting to chase your career and your ambitions and your desires, but also still ba- balance out your responsibilities and your love for your children. So I, I almost think I was so internally focused on a lot of that and on doing the research and on getting this book out that I felt like. I was writing more for myself at that point than anybody. I was waking up like before the sun rose to get a couple hours of writing in before we I did virtual school for my daughter. And I didn't really have that outside pressure as much. And then ironically enough, by the time you know, a year or two had passed and I was polishing up the drafts, I'm very fortunate and blessed that the Diabod trilogy had grown more successful, but it had almost been why I was so focused away on something else um that I didn't really have that nervous pressure now I just I feel fairly confident about the story it's different than the Devabad trilogy but I I don't for whatever reason I don't feel the nervousness of oh will people not like this project because I already you know I was like I got through that without even thinking about it
0: <laughs> yeah that's such a such an interesting point I mean we speak to authors obviously who've been writing throughout the whole pandemic and everyone's experience has been so different you know for some, it was just this amazing opportunity to put all distractions aside and just focus on the writing. But I think if you're a parent, it's probably a bit different, especially, you know, when you're connected and in such a like city that is being being hit by by all of that. So it sounds like it had quite the influence on on the book. And I mean, a good kind of follow-up from that is about this theme of kind of fantasy and adventure that seems to be a, a great form of escape during a, a pretty tough time while you're writing it, but seems to be this kind of great way of bringing common ideas and, and thoughts to this like exciting landscape. So what kind of compels you to write stories like that?
2: You know, it's interesting because I get this question quite often and I never know how to answer because for me, it feels natural to write fantasy. I don't think I could write straight just regular fiction. I've tried. And even with The Adventures of Mina Sarafi, it was originally meant to have far less magic. And it just comes in and overwhelms the story. And I first, you know, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, like is that for children, adventure tales are not serious. But for me, there's such magic in it. I think fantasy tales are... We are the oldest profession, the true oldest profession in many ways. <laughs> you know, people have been sitting around the fire or sitting, you know, or in the caravansarai and telling stories to explain the world around them in fantastical details to both inspire, to explain, to let people sort of escape, to scare people. I think. Fantasy tales are such a at the core of the human experience in so many ways. I I'm almost honored and a little humbled to <laughs> take my place in telling and sort of spinning these stories. Um. So I yeah I I maybe will write more straight historical fiction one day, but I doubt it. I think just like <laughs> you know, various creatures will make their way through. <laughs>
0: I always have such an admiration for kind of fantasy fiction writers and and you know science fiction writers and stuff like that people who really have this expanse of imagination because it's um it's not not only difficult to do I think it also kind of it's difficult to explore new things with readers you know I think audiences having to explain the concept that they may not even understand at all, it's a, it's a challenging thing to do, I imagine. So um, I think its it's a really admirable kind of writing trait to have. And obviously part of your writing is that it's kind of taking place in all these gorgeous, rich landscapes where you've got the sort of like 18th century Egypt, Cairo, you're looking at in this new series, you've got your sort of like medieval Indian Ocean, what you know what research do you kind of undertake when you're when you're thinking up all these kind of great stories
2: so ironically enough for me the research has always come first um i wanted to be a historian before i wanted to be a novelist and my interest unsurprisingly i suppose was the medieval indian ocean sphere i kind of pulled from a lot of what i had studied at school which was very fortunate cuz i get the question a lot of i you know okay i want to write historical fantasy where do i start with the research and i always feel like i'm not even the best person to ask because I was fortunate enough to have this basis. So a lot of times when I need to find something out, I kind of know where to look. Mm. That being said, the research for this book was at an entirely different level. And part of, part of I was looking forward to that. Um, I had loved writing the David Bot trilogy, but it was far more historically inspired. And with this series, I really wanted to dive in. I think I was ambitious enough to even tell people, oh, this is going to be completely historically accurate, except for the plot, which was truly a great way to be repeatedly humbled over the next few years. Because of course, we don't know as much about the 12th century Western Indian Ocean, as you might say, the 18th century, or the 19th century. And while so much more academic work and discoveries have been done really by this just wonderful generation of new scholars. Uh, there was a lot we don't know, and there's a lot that's always changing. I mean, that is what history is. It's a, it's a creation tale in itself, and it's pulled from our own unconscious biases, our intentions, and the little bits we can find out. Little bits that are often completely overturned in two years. So the research for it was fascinating and challenging. I know so much more about medieval boats than I ever thought I would. <laughs> um and it was it was sort of a delight because it really brought the period alive. Um because I was trying to work from primary accounts where possible. So I would just, you know, be trying to find details about shipboard life. So you would look at the list of just packing the packing list a merchant would bring with him and it brings that okay so he would you would take this for seasickness or you know don't bring your good dishes because they'll get battered by the waves and it was just really it makes you you know they write letters to their family they write oh i I want some gifts for my children and it just really brought the period and its people alive um so doing the research was a challenge but it was also just delightful because i felt like i learned so much i worked with a couple great scholars to fill in the gaps. And even in working with them, it was another challenge to my own modern biases that I hadn't even realized I was holding um, about issues of how magic was perceived back then, but how gender and sexuality were perceived. So I really feel like I learned so much. um, And it was just a great experience working with these scholars and working with the sources that I I want to write historical fantasy now forever.
0: <laughs> well, it sounds like you've got a sort of really solid foundation to to do that from. So that that's amazing. And also what you were sort of saying earlier about these communities being the the things that aren't necessarily documented in big history, you know, that these people that you're talking about, I imagine there's probably less documentation about their lives because they weren't, you know, as as like prominent in society.
2: Exactly. And I think, you know, it's almost unfortunate because that gives us almost a stilted view of history that we're just thinking of the rulers and the generals and the armies and the and the wars, whereas, you know, and I think that we, we then think of history and medieval history as this grisly, terrible time for everyone when people made lives and they found happiness in those lives. And I think that just brings the human experience closer and maybe makes us think about our own world a little differently.
0: Also, I suppose, for your kind of readers and for the audiences who love books like this, it makes history, like learning about history more accessible as well, which is obviously a great kind of privilege as a writer.
2: Yes, and that was my hope. I wrote an incredibly long and overly detailed section at the end of the book about about sources and if people were interested, where they could find more. And I truly hope um, it does spark some curiosity in readers
0: yeah I think so I think you're going to be making a whole generation of historical um, scholars there and so it you know you kind of talked about how research is is a huge foundation of your of your writing process and you mentioned kind of getting up before dawn and, and writing what can you tell our listeners about your writing process more generally do you think of everything at the start and then just write it all out or do you see what happens
2: I am very much in the camp of see what happens. And it took me a long time to get comfortable with that because that is not how I approach anything else in my life. <laughs> I'm one of those overly organized people who has, you know, a different to-do list for every section of time and chronology. But with writing, I just can't, that's not my 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 way. A lot of times I'll have a general idea of where I want the story to go, certain certain points of like, okay, this is the tension point of I would like this scene to you know, have X, Y, and Z happen. I'm trying to get them to here. I think the overall character arc and plot arc will be here, but I'm a big believer in kind of writing it out and seeing where it goes. And if you need to meander a bit in another direction, because it feels natural, do that. If you need to, if you get completely stuck on a scene and you need to stop and write notes to yourself, I don't, I am stuck on this scene. Here's what I wanted to happen and just move forward. I think you get a, far more organic story doing that and sort of continuously re-editing off of that very scrappy. Oh, I can't hesitate to call it even a manuscript, but I, I I completely admire people who can outline the entire thing and know what's going to happen. But every time I've tried to do that, I will get to this is going to happen. And my brain will say, Oh no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> this is what's going to happen. And from my experience, every time I've had that I go with my gut over my original plan.
0: It's like you say, you know, storytelling is this like incredible tradition. And um, the first storytellers probably weren't there thinking, <laughs> oh, I need to have, you know, your climax, your start, yeah. <laughs> then the, the dramatic tension needs to build about 25% of the way in, you know, very organic way of um, consuming these stories as well. So I wanted to ask a little bit, You've sort of spoken about in previous interviews about writing for your community as a Islamic revert. And I wanted to ask kind of what the lan- literary landscape is like for Muslim readers and Muslim writers and whether there's anything that the publishing industry can do to better represent those communities.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny because I get this question a lot. And I think far better people than I have spoken about, you know, the history of Orientalism and in publishing, in fantasy in, in particular. But at this point, I think the best thing to do is to just give those sources to Muslim writers, give them to those sources to writers from marginalized communities, all different ones. Um, I think sometimes we get bent into there can only be one writer from this community or only one story from this community and then that skews how we're represented so I at this point I just want to see more Muslim writers Um, we're getting there but even in you know I can look at the YA landscape, which is far more more diverse, at least in my country. Adults' fantasy and science fiction still has a ways to go, but I think we just we're so benefited by having more perspectives and more voices. We get richer stories, we get more diverse stories and storytelling traditions. You know, I was having a conversation recently um, with another writer, and we were even just talking about some of the Western tropes in science fiction and fantasy. The idea of the redemption arc or the loner and some of them are pulled from very christian ideas or this idea of american exceptionalism and if you widen that out to different cultural experiences you truly do get different ways of even genre fiction Um, one of the things in islam you know is there's this idea of the hidden realm that's where the jinn are said to be that's where these creatures are said to be they live alongside us and i always thought that was very interesting because that's maybe a different take on magic and folklore than you would see in other traditions. How does that then work with stories of the fantastic? And that's only one cultural tradition. So I, I think we're just so much richer um, for making sure those stories are getting heard and those authors are getting the same resources and the same boosts and the same interviews, the same advances <laughs> as authors from you know a more traditional background.
0: Yeah, you're completely right. It's really interesting that any of these kind of folklore or or really embedded religious concepts that are prominent in all Muslim societies don't make their way into Western fiction often. And um and then when they are, they're stereotyped or they're misrepresented. So um yeah, the idea of the jinn and and things like that, it's it's a really good point. I'm gonna have to go and like seek out some some good authors, which is probably a good time to kind of ask you actually, What kind of books do you like to read? Are you a big consumer of fantasy fiction and historical fiction?
2: I am. I mean, I like to read pretty much everything. I've been a voracious reader since I was a kid. Um, One of those kids was just like, whatever I would get my hands on, I would just try to read. Um, At this point, I do try to read a good mix of, you know, I'll read a nonfiction book. I do like my history. So I'll read something like that. And then I'll read fiction. Um, I do tend, I, I think... Before I was published, I, I read more of a mix of different genres of fiction. Now I think I do steer more towards fantasy and, and you know sci-fi and, and historical fiction just because it's it's a mix of keeping up on my own professional field and, and what's what's out there and what's being written and frankly, getting all those books from publishers. <laughs> but you know, it's I, I my list of books that I now want to read and books that are in my home is just in, completely insurmountable. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I can see for uh, for the benefit of the listeners, I can see fully stacked bookshelves, quite gorgeously presented, actually. So, oh, thank you.
2: These yeah. are just my research books, and and the couple of books that I've written. We are uh, downstairs. Our our home is just. I, my husband's a reader. My daughter's a reader. So I, we look like we live in a library. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, speaking of libraries, <laughs> great, great segue. Um, my um, you know, obviously coming from Hampshire libraries we're always really keen to hear how all kind of lives and um, writing backgrounds have been shaped by libraries if they have and if not then that's interesting as well but um, what kind of significance do libraries hold for you?
2: They hold a tremendous significance, um, one I don't even think I can understate, since and they have since I was a child. I come from a working class family. We could not afford to keep up with my reading habits, especially. So, I mean, from the time I was little, I've been one of those kids who goes into the library and checks out as many books as they're allowed <laughs> to carry home, who reads adult books they're probably not supposed to be reading. <laughs> um, so I've always just relied on libraries and then even... You know, when I was a young adult, I, we, my, my family was living in New York City and that was really sort of the only place I could, we had, we we're very fortunate in the States in New York City to have a great public library system and they have great programs for young families that are more accessible. So I could take my daughter and we could do story time. We could do crafts. They had programs. And then that was also where I worked. Um, oh, really? So I pretty much wrote the entire David Ba trilogy in the Queen's library system. Wow. Um, so I, I mean, it's even today. I still go there to do my research, to get rent, to request, you know, random books from universities across the country to work. Um, so libraries have just always been with me on my journey as both a reader and an author.
0: Oh, that's amazing to hear. I, I love that. It's also it's really lovely to hear that the kind of programs you're describing that your daughter t- takes part in. You know, the craft activities and the story time. They're these kind of <laughs> cross-cultural, um, like, common denominators in libraries across the world because we have them in Hampshire as well. So it's amazing to hear that that's the common thread among libraries globally. Very good. And I suppose to kind of wrap up the questions that I've been asking, what is next on the horizon for you? Obviously, you've got two more books in this series to, to write. Have you got started on those? Are they finished already? They are not finished. Um, (laughs) The second one
2: is in very loose early draft stage. Um, I'm still doing a lot of the preliminary research for that, as well as kind of, like I said, that sort of messy (laughs) draft of writing it and seeing where it goes. Um, It was my original intention for this trilogy for each book to have a slightly more standalone feel. That, you know, each each one kind of focuses on one sort of magical talisman that is to be retrieved. And that they're playing with different tropes. Um, I wanted the first book to play with the idea of, you know, like I said, Ocean's Eleven. Everybody coming back together for one more heist. The second book, I want to feel a bit more like a ghost story needs a murder mystery. And then the third book,
0: we're doing The Mummy. So... <laughs> Oh, my goodness. How long are we going to have to wait for that then?
2: We might have to write, oh, wait a while, Um, as I was mentioning before we started. For my book on motherhood, I am, ironically enough, will be nine months pregnant when it comes out. So I'm not quite sure I'll be churning them out as quickly as I did the David Bod books, but I am working on them.
0: Yeah. Oh uh, well. I'm sure our listeners will be absolutely delighted to hear that there's more on the way. Um. And obviously, and a baby on the way as well. <laughs> plenty, plenty of, of excitement in your future. Then. Um. Yeah. I think this one is going to be certainly a popular one in our library as well. I imagine it's probably already fully reserved. So, um, it will be flying off the shelves as soon as it lands. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today.
2: Well, thank you for having me on, and I, I hope people pick up the book and enjoy it.
0: I'm, oh, I'm absolutely certain that they were. I can't wait. I enjoyed speaking to Shannon so much about her books, and I'm really excited about this series. I think it's going to be a really popular one with our listeners.
1: Yeah, I was particularly taken in by her description of it as Ocean's Eleven meets Simba the Sailor. It sounds like a thrilling read. Okay, moving on to the second part of this episode now, and time for an expert book recommendation from one of our library team members. Hi Adrian, and
0: welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: So you are one of our library team assistants at Hampshire Library, so would you be able to tell us a little bit more about your role and whereabouts you work in the county?
3: Certainly. So I've been in the library service now for nine years. I started in New Milton and, and Limington and then went on to Hythe, Blackfield and Totten and now I'm in Ringwood and Fordingbridge. So I've done the whole New Forest area. I've loved my work right from the word go. My little secret is that when I actually came into the library service, I hadn't really read any books, which <laughs> might come as a surprise. I came into the library as a jack-of-all-trades. I've been a mental health nurse, I've been a computer technician, all of which do help within the library service because the ability to, to pull on all your resources really helps with the library setup and the mix within the staff of the, of whichever library I'm in. I'm always getting called for computer questions, which is understandable.
1: People do come to libraries, not just for books. They are coming because libraries are a really welcoming, safe place to be. And having somebody who can understand perhaps the mental pressures that people are, are under must be really helpful for, for people that are coming to the libraries you're working at.
3: So I actually, coming in with nothing as a, as a literary background, really, I yes, I liked the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series and and so on, things like that, that I would get through Radio 4 on on an afternoon or evening with their with their funnies but that was about it then i started using we had then we had overdrive and now we have borrow box and i love borrow box it's fantastic i now tend to listen to about 100 to 120 books a year um, wow. and that yeah. that gives me that gives me so much a joy because i love the books that i'm reading But also it gives me such a great insight in order to pass on those books to others as recommendations. I also listen in on the digital readers group. Whilst I don't tend to be able to make, get to the meetings, I still read the books. So mm. that it, that gives me such a, a broader range. We did the 41-hour Pillars of Earth of the Earth by Ken Follett, all the way down to um, the end of Mr. Y, which was quite a great fantasy fiction element. Mm. I do like the fantasy fiction. My, my hero is Terry Pratchett, and mm. I will always listen and re-listen to him over and over again.
1: Yeah, the good thing about the digital readers is is there's usually loads of copies on Borrow Box, so you don't have to wait for yes. the book you want to read to become available. But I do find that there was a book I wanted to read on Borrow Box or an audiobook, and you just reserve it and it's amazing how quickly the time comes around for when Absolutely. you get it, when it becomes available. Are you somebody that listens to an audiobook sitting in a chair or are you out and about gardening or walking the dog or
3: Yes, not at all. I I wear bone conducting headphones, which is like having the sound coming through through your head, through the through the bone rather than through the ears, which is a Mm. bit weird for some to, to grasp. However, it means that it's like having the radio on. You can still hear what's going on around you. So I do the washing up. I do the gardening. I do all sorts of things through the bluetooth
0: that's fantastic i was going to say do you listen on sort of like two times speed or anything like that to not get at it?
3: all no oh, no wow no.
0: that's amazing i think i've been to a few of the new forest libraries the libraries you're working in could you describe them a little bit and talk about the kind of communities and the customers that uh, that kind of visit them
3: super so we're we're in a very new forest area so we've got um if you you don't have to go far before you've got donkeys on the road and Uh things like that we have a very large community spirit in both libraries we've got a community fridge which is doing they're both doing really well in Ringwood they actually save over three tons of food waste going to landfill every month and they're very active we've got a veterans hub within Ringwood library for all members of the arms ex-members of the armed services and the blue light brigade and we have lots of activities both for the children and for adults we've also been promoting the warm spaces to the point where we've had a local charity fund us for every Monday. So we actually open on an extra day from 11 till 7 every Monday until April. It's a lovely community between both. Fordingbridge is a smaller library, but it's still very perfectly formed. Again, we do the learning in libraries throughout both. We do all sorts of things. It's such a pleasure for me coming into libraries. It's so lovely to sell free stuff.
1: Yeah, they play such a central role in communities. Yeah, it's it's great to talk to somebody like you where you can see that shining through. OK, so let's talk about the books that we're going to recommend. Uh, Adrian, would you like to start by telling us a bit about the book you've chosen and why you've chosen it?
3: Certainly. So I've chosen Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. Because I like the audiobooks, I, I'll also say that it's narrated by Ray Porter who does an excellent job of it. The book is a wonderful journey. It's very happy. It's very real. It is what's called hard sci-fi, which means that it's actually more believable. It's not like Star Trek where you land on a planet and everybody breathes air and talks English. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a book that you could imagine happening to a person from Earth in this in this scenario. Earth has had a bit of a problem, but initially we find that we are this person who's woken up from a coma and is trying to work out what's happening around him. Eventually, he finds he's actually on a spaceship heading towards a sun, but he finds that it's not his own sun. Mm. It's a different sun. And through the, through the element of flashbacks, this really helps you develop and, and understand why the chap is there. There is science in there, but it's explained really well and anybody can actually understand from the problem solving that he goes through to try and work out how he's going to help the earth solve its problem of of its diminishing sun. Mm. He actually notices that there is suddenly another spaceship, and he finds that actually that there is something that is completely different to earth coming towards him. You can imagine what anyone would think is it going to eat me is it going to blow me up and eventually they find out that this other extraterrestrial has the planet that is having the same problem they've both actually come at the same time to try and work out this problem and once they've got their language together they both work together to try and find out how to solve the problems for both solar systems and there are lots of problems there are lots of things that go wrong and it's how they both problem solve to work out how they can get it to a good resolution. It's okay. a wonderful book. It, it, it really comes to a, a great end. It's, it's, it's a fantastic read and an even better listen.
1: I'm familiar with this writer because of his earlier work. I'm assuming it's an earlier yes. book, which was The Martian. The Martian, yes. It was a huge blockbuster film with, with Matt Damon. And what I really loved about that book is that as well as being a page-turner, really exciting story, it made engineering the kind of hero of the book. Um, So does this kind of love of engineering shine through in Project Hail Mary as well?
3: Absolutely. Engineering and science. If you've got any form of science awareness, you will love the book because you'll think, oh, yes, I know that. I I can relate to that. And that's brilliant that it does that. With the characterizations." within the Martian it was a very plain character there wasn't much of the backstory or whatever but where within this one where Ryland who is the main protagonist you get to know uh, all about his life about how he feels and all sorts of characterizations that you didn't get in the Martian
0: is this the kind of book that you like to read then what what made you kind of pick it up in the first place
3: Partly because I like the, the genre. I go in for a lot of science fiction, science fantasy. A lot of the books that I read tend to actually be more the uh, young adult type because they tend to explain things better. It, the language is generally a little bit toned down. However, because of my, my broad reading, I'll go anything from very difficult books from of hard sci-fi to very... Strange fantasy books with lots of elves and and goblins and all sorts of things, of which I do love Terry Pratchett. I'll always be absorbed by it.
1: And one of the things with Terry Pratchett, and I would have said also with, from what I know from The Martian, is humour in it. And is there humour in in uh, Project Hail Mary as well?
3: There is so much humour. Yes, mm. I would say it was more than on a par with Terry Pratchett for the humour. Very very American, very obvious but also very funny. Another plus is that the the planet that they find the solution from is actually, they've named it Adrian for some reason, which obviously <laughs> I would like. This is basically because of the Rocky Bill Bauer films because Rocky, who's who's oh, the yeah. alien, his they, they've named it Adrian after, after Rocky's wife.
1: So we've been talking about uh, Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. So uh, Hattie Have you got a reading suggestion for us?
0: Yes, I do. So I've chosen a book that's kind of along the sci-fi fantasy futuristic theme and gone with a book by Philip K. Dick called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is a weird title, but people will probably most be familiar with the story because it's the book that Blade Runner was adapted from. I don't know why they didn't stick with the original title. They went with Blade Runner. It's a bit cooler. Much like the film, it's set in this sort of post-apocalyptic future where the earth has been really badly damaged by nuclear war and very little animal life remains. So having a real animal as a pet is uh, seen as a huge status symbol and element of the of the book is the lead character's a bounty hunter called Rick Deckard who's been tasked to sort of find and destroy these six androids who've escaped their role supporting humans on Mars. He dreams of having a pet and owning one. And so I think that's probably where where the titles come from, obviously. Part of the book and part of his kind of hunt, tracking down all of these uh, androids, is administering this kind of empathy test, which is meant to identify empathy in the androids and try and see whether the androids can be distinguished from real people so he doesn't go and you know attack humans it's kind of a a bit of a comment on machine learning and AI I guess in a way because as these newer models come through production it becomes increasingly difficult to make these distinctions and it kind of I guess overall starts to raise questions about you know what makes people human and what is humanity's response to having support from technology and things like that which is really interesting and surprisingly relevant for a book that was written in 1968, so well over 50 years ago. Yeah, I, I love sci-fi and fantasy as well, and this kind of post-apocalyptic, futuristic sci-fi is, is particularly something I'm fond of, so... Have either of you read it?
3: No, I haven't read that one. I had read his other one, which was was dramatised, which was about if World War Two had uh, gone the other way.
1: It's amazing how many of his books have been adept- adapted into well-known films. I reckon it's probably only people like Stephen King and Jane Austen who have beaten him. Yes. Yeah, there's Total Recall. I hadn't realised that the Adjustment Bureau and Minority Report, they're oh, all right based on his books as well. So he's obviously a great storyteller who comes up with these extraordinary ideas. So, um, yeah.
3: Yes, a recommended author.
1: I am a bit of a super fan of the film Blade Runner as I am old enough to remember seeing it in the cinema and I've seen it many, many times since. It slightly bewilders me though, because it's set in 2025, which is only two years ahead of where we are now. And for me, I think science fiction works really well when it's about the author using this created world to push ideas to an extreme, as he does in this case to kind of explore ideas about identity and what it means to be human. It certainly, I wouldn't have said, has the humour of some of the other books we've been talking about.
0: Kate, what have you brought to recommend?
1: Well, my knowledge or experience of science fiction is really limited, and hearing your two recommendations has made me think this is something I need to address, so... I have, I'm already on my way to doing that. So because of that, I decided to go in a completely different direction. And I use some of the themes from, Adrian, your your Mm recommendation to inspire my suggested book. So I'm going back to 2011 for a psychological thriller, which is entirely based on the idea of amnesia with the protagonist trying to piece together the past. So it's a bit of a bestseller, so I'm sure you'll know. It's Before I Go to Sleep by S.J. Watson, which incredibly was a debut novel. What a tough act to follow for that author to have such a huge hit with your first. If you haven't read it, It has a kind of dozy of a premise, which is that the central character wakes up every morning in a room she doesn't recognize with a man she doesn't know. And then she looks in the mirror and she's expecting to see her 20 something face that she's used to. And instead, she sees a middle aged face. And it turns out that decades previously, she's had some kind of terrible accident, which has destroyed her ability to form new memories. I mean, it's sort of based on science. I have read that actually happening probably wouldn't be possible. So it means that every day she has to start from scratch, rebuilding her understanding of her past and who she is. And bit by bit, she starts uncovering clues which don't kind of seem to fit together. And if you haven't read the book, again, this is a something that's been made into film. It was made into film, I think, I think with Nicole Kidman and Colin Firth, among others. And I remember when it first came out, I listened to it again on audiobook. And I was on holiday and I just couldn't speak to anyone until I'd finished it because <laughs> I just had to know what what the um what the end result was. So is this a book either of you two have read?
3: I haven't read it myself. I did 15 years in dementia nursing and research and it sounds like something that someone with dementia would probably feel akin to it's mm. definitely one that I have on the to be read list
1: mm. yeah I mean it would probably really annoy you for all the medical stuff it gets wrong but <laughs> I suppose that idea of bewilderment and not knowing what you can trust from what is going on in your your mind I, I think probably resonates with a lot of
0: people
3: mm.
0: that's true yeah I love a book that really has a bit of a a mystery to it and it sounds like this one is one of those ones that kind of unpeels as you, the more you read, which is exactly the kind of thing I like to read. So I'm going to add it to my to-be-read list <laughs> now too.
1: And like the film Memento, it's really ingenious, the different ways that one can go about putting together memories if you can't make them stick in your mind and Mm -hmm. I think memory loss or false memories it makes a really great story hook and it, it got me thinking about other books that use this as a theme like there's a book by Leanne Moriarty called What Alice Forgot and also Marianne Key's book Is There Anybody Out There and there's also The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins which is another great thriller about trying to fathom out slightly forgotten or distorted memories so it's a really good theme in which to, to base a book.
0: Mm. Can you think of anything off the top of your head that does any other books that kind of fit along that theme? I'm trying to think. As a nonfiction, there's The uh, the Man Who Mistook His
1: Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks, and that is, uh, he's a neurologist, and he kind of puts together this collection of different neurological conditions that- and other things as well. So that's a really interesting one, which I guess certainly would be a lot more scientific foundation to it.
0: Well, before we sort of wrap up and and head off, Adrian, are there any other books that you'd like to give a special mention to?
3: So one my mother-in-law said to me, um, which was one that that I really enjoyed, was called Knife Edge by Simon Mayo, which it was a really good thriller about um, some knife attacks and trying to piece together was doing this and what the end outcome was going to be. I'd never heard of of Simon Mayer's books before and it was really good because it had short chapters and they were really punchy and the storyline went very quickly. Other books I would suggest there's also the Nomad series by James Swallow. Again this is more James Bondy type across different countries and lots of lots of intrigue and a little bit of technical know-how which is great. And I must admit that BorrowBox does have such a great range of different books. Trying to find the the whole series might be a bit tricky, but I must say for Terry Pratchett, it's got a really good selection. Otherwise, I'd just say keep reading, look at a genre and pick anything within that and listen with an open ear.
0: Yeah, that's excellent advice. Absolutely amazing. Hopefully this will inspire plenty of people to pick up pick up their phones, pick up their library cards, go and get reading.
3: I would thoroughly recommend it.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us, Adrian, and we will look forward to speaking to you again soon.
3: Pleasure. Take care.
1: Well, I think we both agreed that chatting with Adrian just got us inspired not only about books but about what libraries mean to their communities.
0: And I'm still kind of flabbergasted at the volume in his reading list. I think if I was able to get through that many books a year, it would change my life. You know, I would, all my recommendations would have many different like strands and subplots and all of that. It it was brilliant. He was so good and if you're a hampshire libraries member who can't wait to reserve any of the many books that we've mentioned today please do head to our website which you'll also find in our show notes and While we've got you, it's also worth mentioning that if your library account hasn't been used in a while, you might be at risk of your account expiring, so it's worth checking. So as of the 1st of June this year, 2023, Hampshire libraries are going to be reverting to their pre-pandemic policy of requiring members to re-register their account at least every three years.
1: The good news is that this is really easy to do, so find out how at the link in our show notes. Well, that's about all we've got time for today. Thank you to Shannon, to Adrian, and thank you for listening. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy. And I'm Hattie Dulac.